0: Loving Sairam and greetings from Prashanti Nilayam. If you recall, last time I narrated the story of the pen, fountain pen that Swami gave me and His remark that in life everything is spiritual. I added that this is exactly in the spirit of the Gita and I also mentioned that I will explain that remark next time. So, maybe I should begin by fulfilling my promise. In the Gita Vahini, Swami says that while one acts in the present and in relation to worldly circumstances, one must, however, perform the action with the eternal always in view. What Is it that is eternal? God or the Atma? That alone is eternal. Therefore, always performing one's duties, keeping God in view, is the essence of the Bhagavad Gita. Swami told me the same thing by remarking that in life, everything is spiritual. There is no such thing as, this is worldly and does not concern God. That is spiritual and therefore relevant to God, and so on. Such Factorization and compartmentalization is immature, unwarranted and totally uncalled for. Certainly such segmentation does not get any sanction or approval from Vedanta. On the other hand, the separation is an artifact invented by humans to dodge practicing Dharma. I am not making this up. Recently, when I commented on corruption, I think it was in heart-to-heart. I received many mails protesting that corruption was simply a way of modern life and that it was not correct to bring in spirituality, morality, etc. where corruption was concerned. One devotee even wrote, In our company we simply call it speed money, that is, money paid for the speedy rendering of service. I would say that is pretty ingenious. But all that does not wash sin into morality. At least, if I understand Dharma properly, there is no way in which such legitimacy can be conferred on patently immoral acts. All this just by way of reinforcing the point that every action must be spiritual. With this background, let us hear the next quote of Swami. And I quote, You may claim that you live according to Dharma, but your basic flaw is that your acts are not done in the spirit of dedication. If so done, it gets stamped with the authentic mark of dharma. Some clever folk might raise a doubt and ask, Can we then kill and injure in the name of the Lord dedicating the act to Him? Well, how can a person get the attitude of dedicating all his activities to the Lord without at the same time being pure in thought, word and deed, love equanimity, rectitude, non-violence these are the attendant virtues of the servant of the Lord how can cruelty and callousness coexist with these virtues end of quote I suppose the message is loud and clear one cannot claim one is a devotee of God and use that as an excuse to offer to God anything and everything especially immoral acts this is not at all far fetched I know for a fact that people pray to God and even go to temples and perform special pujas and what not, so that some business ventures of theirs, often based on shady practices, would succeed. Here, one is trying to do business with God. Is this what God expects of us? If you do not believe me, all you have to do is to make a trip to Tirupati and watch how devotees offer all sorts of things to Govinda most of the time as an advance payment or as a quick quo, The human mind, said a wise man, has infinite capacity to trick itself. Indeed, just as the mind tricks many into legitimizing immoral acts simply by offering it to God, the mind equally offers its own definition of devotion or bhakti. Here is what Swami says about this practice. Quote, simple folk believe that they have bhakti towards the Lord, but they do not pause to inquire whether the Lord has love towards them. People who pine to discover this are rather rare. That is really the true measure of spiritual success. End of quote. Yes, there is no use in declaring our undying love for God. The real point is whether God is ready to accept our declarations. In the quote just offered, Swami refers to a devotee pining for the Lord. I know one example where the devotee constantly did this. I am referring to the great musical saint Tyagaraja to whom Swami often makes a reference. Tyagaraja literally lived all his life with Lord Rama from morning to evening and in many of the innumerable songs he composed in honor of the Lord, the saint wails and cries to have Rama's attention. That is pining. The next quote of Swami that I shall be offering you is a bit technical and maybe I should say a few words by way of preparation. I don't know whether you remember my mentioning earlier about the fundamental principle and the derived practical dharma so called. In the quote that follows, Swami would be making a reference to many such specialized packages, meant for men and women, people who are householders, elders and so on. The essential point that is made is, that while there are any number of derivative packages, they are all better be consistent with Atma Dharma. Perhaps you find that difficult to understand. Don't worry, I shall explain that. But first, let us have the quote. Here it is. Quote, As wood is turned into furniture and used, Atma Dharma has to be shaped into Grahastha Dharma, Vanaprastha Dharma, Varna Dharma, Dharma, Purusha Dharma, etc. The stuff is the same in all. The substance is identical in every separate form. How can the substance be used up? It can only be transmuted and transformed and various modifications named differently when used for different purposes. The Atma Dharma can be viewed piecemeal and compartmentalized for different purposes, even as the wood is hewn and sawed and joined and arranged and rearranged. But it is Atma Dharma nevertheless. So long as the different systems of Dharma are derived from that wood, There is no harm. Remember, however, that the furniture can never be regrouped into the original tree. Apply that Atma Dharma in the fields of worldly activity, but do not call the worldly dharma Satma Dharma. That will be playing false to the ideal, the absolute. End of quote. So, what exactly does this quote mean? I have touched upon this point earlier, but maybe I should explain it once more somewhat differently so that you understand it better, perhaps. Now, as you know, every country has a constitution. America has one, India has one, and so on. Everywhere, in every country, the constitution is held to be the fundamental and guiding principle. All laws made by the legislature or rules promulgated by the executive authority must Always be in full conformity with the constitution. The laws passed and the rules laid down are derivatives and unless they conform to the constitution, they are likely to be dismissed by the courts as ultra virus or illegal. Swami is saying something similar. In the days of yore, Emperor Manu is supposed to have made up many such packages and these are collectively referred to as Manu Dharma. These packages are very useful at the working or practical level, but occasions can arise when they may not be clear. In those circumstances, one has to check out the action contemplated or one's interpretation of Manu's rule book by referring to the basic principle or Atma Dharma. If it does not pass that test, then out it goes. By the way, this was the fundamental teaching of Krishna to Arjuna. You remember what happened. Arjuna wanted to drop out saying it's a sin to kill. Yes, it is a sin to kill. But, as Krishna pointed out, that if by dropping out one is failing to protect Dharma, which is a mandated duty, then one is actually on the side of Adharma. That is what emerges when the acid test of the fundamental principle or Atma Dharma is applied. Since I have discussed this extensively elsewhere, I shall not pursue that angle any further here. And so, let me now move on to the next quote from Swami's Dharma Vahini. Quote, Dharma is the moral path. The moral path is the light. The light is Ananda. Dharma is characterized by holiness, peace, truth, and fortitude. Dharma is yoga, union, and merger. It is satya. Its attributes are justice, sense control, sense of honor, love, dignity, goodness, meditation, sympathy, and non-violence. Such is dharma that persists through the ages. It leads one on to universal love and unity. End of quote. This quote is short, but full of deep meaning and we need to digest it slowly and carefully. Now, Dharma is a word that is so vast in scope that it is not easy to give meaning to it like one normally does in a dictionary. In fact, the nuances of Dharma being so unique to India, it is difficult to use the metaphors of a foreign language and describe the scope of Dharma, as I am trying to do now. The first thing that Swami says is, The dharma leads one to ananda or eternal bliss. In other words, if any justification for following dharma is needed, then it is this. By following dharma, one can attain permanent union with God or merger as it is often called. And such a merger leaves one in a state where time stands still, one is eternally happy and beyond the reach of any pain whatsoever. This leads me to the next quote from Swami. Quote, Wherever there is adherence to morality, there one can see Satya Dharma in action. In the Bhagavad Gita too it is said, where there is Dharma, there is Krishna. Where there are both, Dharma and Krishna together, there is victory. Dharma is the very embodiment of the Lord. Since the world itself is the body of the Lord, the world is but another name for moral order. No one can deny it now or ever. End of quote. The words that I quoted just now are extremely important and need some intense reflection. Basically, it deals with an important issue, namely making satya and dharma the basis for all actions. It is in this context Swami has quoted the last stanza of the Gita, which by the way are words spoken not by Krishna nor by Arjuna, but by Sanjaya the man who served as the running commentator for the blind king, Girdarashtra. Just before launching the famous salt satyagraha during the Indian freedom struggle, Mahatma Gandhi quoted this last sloka and gave it the following interpretation, which I think is very, very powerful. Gandhiji said that Krishna represents the end, while Arjuna represents the mean. In any activity that we undertake, there is a certain goal and there are certain means that we must adopt to attain that goal. Some people think that if the end is good, then all means are fair. That is to say, the end justifies the means. Vedanta firmly and most emphatically rejects this. And that's exactly what Gandhiji reminded his followers about. The point is very important because many people, especially in politics, often justify unfair practices, including corruption, with the dubious argument. They say, look, I don't want any money personally. I have enough. But to stay in power, one needs money. How can one win elections without money? Therefore, I collect money so that I can stay in office and serve the people. I'm doing all this for public good, you know. That's all. This argument has been put forth many times, but it simply does not wash. Humans may be fooled. People could fool themselves with such dubious excuses. But God is not fooled. He never was and he never would be. That is what Swami says. The universe was created by God and it has a moral undercurrent. One must never go against it. It is as simple as that. While on the subject of minor clarification, people sometimes ask, What, if any, is the connection between satya and dharma? Swami has given the answer. He says, dharma is nothing but satya in action. And from that it follows, as stated above, that satya and dharma are really inseparable like the two sides of a coin. All this might sound a bit heavy and difficult to understand, but if we pause for a moment and reflect, what Swami says is not all that difficult to grasp. Let's now do a bit of revision. The first thing Bhagavan says is, "Oh man, do you know what real dharmic action is? I shall tell you. It is that action which is in full harmony with your atmic nature. You might wonder why God wants you to do that. Well, don't you want to be happy? Are you not doing all sorts of things in order to be happy? You are, are you not? All I am asking you to do is to act in accordance with your Atmic nature, real self, true self, call it what you will, because that way you would attain real happiness. That's essentially what Swami is telling us all the time. Now, this raises many questions, especially in the minds of people not used to spirituality. They would shake their heads and say, listen, the key to happiness is money, lots of it. Don't you know if you have plenty of cash, you can buy your way out of any problem or difficulty? With wealth, one can have a nice house with many rooms, all air-conditioned and full of the latest gadgets a couple of luxury cars, maybe even half a dozen, and vacation homes in many resort areas. With money, one can travel wherever one wants, whenever one wants, have rich and influential friends, etc., etc. And do you know what Vedanta's response to all this is? It says, Oh man, all that you say might appear to be true. But to what extent? Wealth can go away. In fact, even evaporate suddenly. Or else, you may have a terrible medical problem like near paralysis. Of what use is your wealth at that time? At best, you can buy expensive medical attention. The problem might not be physical, but mental, like deep depression caused by traumatic family life or whatever. What then? What can your wealth do in such a situation? Are you not aware of many rich people who lead an utterly miserable life? This might sound very terrible and even negative. One would ask, and indeed many do, does that mean that man is condemned to eternal misery? Does that mean life has no purpose? Is it that life is meant to be a huge burden? How can that be? Swami's answer, and this is very important, so we had better pay careful attention to it. Swami's answer is, Oh, man, no one is declaring that you are born to be miserable. Not at all. God in His infinite compassion and love has given you this life so that you can work your way to not just transient pleasure but eternal bliss. You know why? Because bliss is your true nature. Oh man, do not be deluded by the body. You are not the body but the eternal Atma and bliss is the nature of the Atma. So, Truly speaking, bliss is your real heritage. I am sure you are totally lost, so let me help you out with the following imaginary dialogue between man and God. Man asks, God, if bliss is my heritage, then why am I so miserable? God smiles and replies, Son, that is because you are not opening the door to eternal happiness. Man is astounded. Wonderstruck he asks but God don't you know that I am struggling all the time to find happiness I am working very hard running around so that I can relax and be happy how can you say I am not seeking happiness God answers my dear fellow I am aware you are trying to find happiness but how can you find it if you look for it in the wrong place man then says to God O heavenly father I live in this world. This is all I can see and experience. That being the case, where else can I seek happiness other than in this world? God responds, But man, do you want fleeting happiness or real lasting happiness? Man is astounded by the question and says, God, who would want transient happiness? I want permanent happiness. Indeed, everyone wants that. God smiles and says, Son, I am happy to hear that you want permanent happiness. Are you aware that you are looking for it in the wrong place? Man is stunned and struggles to find words. Feebly he says, But God, why are you saying that? Well, says God, Tell me, dear son, how can you find something permanent in an impermanent world? Don't you think you should look for something permanent in that which is itself permanent to start with? I slipped in this imaginary dialogue between man and God mainly to stress that in this transient world, pleasure always comes with pain. They are like two sides of a coin. Can one have a coin with just only one side? No. And similarly, in this transient world, one cannot have pleasure forever. Can have pleasure for some time, but afterwards, pain is sure to come. No escape from that. Well, that might seem like depressing news. So what is man to do? Is everything lost? Not really. Let us go back to some of the things I said earlier and break them down into simple steps and rules. Swami says the following. 1. God wants man to follow Dharma, because that way man would unite permanently with God. This is what is called merging with the Absolute. 2. When one merges with God, the merger is forever, which means that one is permanently free from bondage. 3. Freedom from bondage also means freedom from pain, misery and suffering. Remember, bondage means being a slave to desires, greed, anger, etc. Every one of which is sure to bring pain and suffering. For, Okay, one is free and there is no bondage. What happens? The answer is simple. Permanent bliss. That is the main point. I am aware that all this would be difficult to understand and even more difficult to put into practice because of the way we have been brought up. And the worldly attitudes that have been etched and frozen into us for many, many years. But times are such and the difficulties that humanity faces are so huge that we have no choice but to get back to the basics. And there is nothing more basic than Satya and Dharma. While Satya is the concept, Dharma is the practical manifestation of truth via action. While Satya is the foundation, Dharma is a superstructure which can even be as huge as a skyscraper. Maybe I can give a little analogy or example to illustrate what is meant by being in tune with satya and dharma. Those of you who are familiar with classical Indian music, be it of the South Indian type or the Hindustani type, you would have noticed that the musicians invariably have an instrument called tambura that provides a background drone throughout the concert. No matter what song is sung, no matter what the tune or the raga is, no matter in which region of the scale the musician is wandering, the cardinal rule is that he must always be in tune with Sruti or the drone of the tambura. Listen to this clip which provides an example. <laughs> Did you hear the clip? Did you get the idea? Good. The point being made is that in life, all actions must be ever in tune with satya and dharma, even as musicians are required never to deviate from the Shruti. If they deviate, it's called apasruti and it's regarded as a distortion of music. Similarly, if action deviates from dharma, it becomes adharma. That's not difficult to follow, is it? Let us now gather our thoughts and see what all we have learned thus far. I put it as follows. 1. Adhering to Dharma is essential for becoming one with God. 2. Once one becomes one with God, it, one ceases to experience pain, since one is transported to a state of permanent bliss. 3. And the recipe for achieving the state of permanent bliss is to make sure that every single action of ours is in tune with the nature of the Atma, the same way a singer makes sure he is in tune with the Tambura. In practical terms, it means that every action must be saturated with Atma Bhavam, meaning the action must be full of selfless love, the way Swami's actions are. I think I have said enough for this talk, and maybe i should sign off at this point take care god bless enjoy Ram.